Hello Falava, you listen to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. A year-long celebration finally comes to an end in Samoa. Also. So do you admit that this process is drawn out? No, I don't. Immigration New Zealand falls short in the Anaru refugee quota for year one. And later on, a new disaster warning system is now in operation for Tonga. While New Zealand currently celebrates Levayasu Olingangana Samoa, or Samoan Language Week, Samoa itself wraps up its 60th independence anniversary celebrations after a year filled with festivities and high-profile visits. Whinau Whunua has more. A flag-raising ceremony marked the occasion. It was held at the village of Lapea, just outside of Apia. The historically significant village is where Samoa's first Prime Minister, Mata'afa Famoina Mulinu'u II, is buried. His daughter and current Prime Minister, Fiyami Naomi Mata'afa, initiated the ceremony in a speech. She commended the nation for honouring the sacrifices of their forefathers. Samoa's journey through 60 years of independence has been celebrated. There are many reasons why we celebrate the importance of this milestone. I believe the most important is the faithfulness of God and His powerful leadership over our nation. The country also celebrates its 61st Independence Day. Foreign delegates have arrived in Samoa as a gesture, including New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister Kamau Sepaloni and Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. In a social media statement, Rambuka said Samoa's independence instilled confidence in the independent movements of other Pacific countries still colonized. But Samoa was the uh, sort of trailblazer, and uh, they, they showed the world, the Pacific territory showed the world that uh, independence from the former colonial masters could be achieved through dialogue and uh, consultations. Samoa officially gained independence from New Zealand on the 1st of January 1962. It was the first European Pacific Island colony to gain independence. Refugee advocates are concerned about the slow implementation of a deal between Australia and New Zealand to resettle people detained by Canberra or Nauru for trying to enter Australia illegally by boat. The New Zealand government has only managed to fill 31 spots out of its 150-a-year refugee quota under the New Zealand-Australia resettlement arrangement. With year one of the three-year deal ending next month, refugee advocates say the process is far too slow. Lydia Lewis has the story. Immigration New Zealand's Andrew Lockhart denies it's dragging the chain. So do you admit that this process is drawn out? No, I don't. No, I don't. It's not. It, it's it's very clear that we're working as hard as we can to get people here that are part of this arrangement. But one refugee who did not want to go on the record says he's been held in detention for almost ten years and is now locked in a hotel room in Australia, waiting for news on his application to finally settle in Aotearoa. 
his ordeal has severely impacted his mental health. In Australia, to the refugees themselves, it's just impossible to understand why there is any delay. Uh, they found to be refugees. Uh, New Zealanders said they would take 100 and 150 a year. What, what, what possible delay you know, could there be? That was Ian Rintoul, who's been advocating for refugees for many years. We're talking about refugees who've been, people who've been found to be refugees in some cases, you know, eight to nine, nine years ago. They've been scrupulously investigated. The NZAUS deal includes those physically in Nauru and those who were previously detained on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea or Nauru, but have since been moved to detention in Australia. The head of Immigration New Zealand, Alison McDonald, says her team is working as quickly as it can to get people to Aotearoa. The first year ends in, in July. Uh, we won't have 150 because we've just started the work, but we will have 450 in over the three-year period. Both Refugee Action Coalition and Amnesty International say the process is far too slow, given the refugees have already been scrutinised to the hilt while held in detention by Australia. Mr Rintoul says with the process taking six to nine months, depending on the complexity of the case and the circumstances, refugees are left in limbo. I've certainly been slow processing permanent protection claims in Australia, but there would seem to be no impediment whatsoever for 150 people to come from either Australia or Nauru you know, to New Zealand. So um, I think someone's got some explaining to do. If New Zealand doesn't, can't understand why there's a delay, then no one understands. He says it's not good enough. What we do know is that the quota this year is, is not going to be met and someone needs to take responsibility for that. INZ Refugee and Migrant Services Acting General Manager Andrew Lockhart says 248 people, both from Nauru and Australia, had been referred to Immigration New Zealand as of May 29. We are gaining momentum and I don't think 248 people is a small number at the end of the day, but it will take a while for them to flow through to uh, numbers are actually arriving in New Zealand, but you'll see that increase as we move into the next year. Mr Rintoul says one positive is the spots that are not filled this year will roll over to next year. But next year is a long way away. Amnesty International Australia's Graham Tom has described the cautious approach the New Zealand government is taking as very sad. That process could have been expedited, but New Zealand is taking a very pragmatic approach to its resettlement program. It doesn't want to give any indication that these refugees are any different from any of the others who are being resettled. I think they've been very clear on that. So sadly, that has meant all of these individuals have had to go through the same level of interviews, medical checks, security checks, the, the usual box ticking that all other refugees have to go through if they're going to be resettled to New Zealand. And, and that has meant, unfortunately, we've, we've only seen very few arrive, despite the fact that we've known exactly who these people are for the last 10 years. While the focus is on resettling refugees eligible under the NZAUS agreement, Mr Tom says it's important not to forget there are also refugees trapped in PNG. Thankfully, countries like New Zealand have still stepped up to, to make sure that there is a solution, at least for some of the men who are trapped in PNG.
Refugees who were also on Manus Island and are now in Australia can be resettled under the AUSNZ agreement, but the 84 who are still in PNG are not included in the deal. A new updated disaster warning system is now in operation across the Kingdom of Tonga. The Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'apai volcanic eruption and subsequent tsunami in 2022 highlighted the need for an improved alert system. The new warning system sits at the new building of Tonga's Broadcasting Commission. Its chief engineer, Solomon Finau, spoke with Moira Tulepa Taylor on the lessons learned from January 15, 2022. So, what we did, we learned from that uh, volcanic eruption how important for us to have a system, warning systems, to alert public uh, before it happens. Because, you know, if we have a local tsunami, it only takes up 10 minutes to hit the shop. So that's why we decided, because we did a trial back in the days, maybe four years before, using mobile network to trigger the systems. So we didn't success that one because uh, when we had the real uh, tsunami alert, that mobile system, the gym, the network gym, so it comes after we had the cancel of the, the alert system. So we decided to use radio signal, especially the AM signal, which cover all islands of Tonga. So we decided to have a system that can con- control from Met Office the weather office, they just push the button and suddenly connected TPC and it turned on the sirens everywhere, even up to the northern islands near the Samoan Islands. And that's how we learn. And we have installed that the September last year. We installed that siren and we did some testing, about one or two months testing with the Japan company who installed it. And now it's working very well. And so now our TD, I'm also involved in the National um, Technical Committee for Early Warning Systems. We have put up some TOR, we have put in some scheduling procedures. Uh, like we are testing the siren every last Friday of every month. Obviously there's a lot of spread out islands yeah. in Tonga as well. How far does the system go from the main, because obviously it's in the TBC in the main island as yeah. well. Uh, what we use, we have two systems. Like uh, we have an antenna with the siren speakers and we have a remote activation receiver, which is a radio. Like you said, the scattered islands. So it makes no sense for us, like a small islands with only about two or three families, to put a tower there. So what we did, we give them a receiver. So that receiver works the same thing with the tower one. So it makes sense. So we distributed about... 80 towers with the speaker sounds, and we also distributed about 500 um, uh, remote uh, activated receiver. So right now we are ordering more. They are demanding more, especially from the two northern islands near the Samoan. Yeah, that's what our committee is working on. Because yeah. I guess too, after the volcanic eruption and the tsunami that... It's people are now recognising the importance of those early warning systems. Wow. The, way back in December, I don't know what date was that, that's when we all finalised everything, tested everything ready. In December, we had a big earthquake on one Friday night. This is Friday night. 
And this early warning system kick off immediately. And that sound, people already familiar with that sound because we already broadcast on TV and radio the awareness programs. Uh, which village you're going to go that village? Because the higher ground, those on the coastline, you have to run to a bigger building, you know? And, and I can tell from that Friday night that people has been educated and they are now it's like a normal for them. Once they hear the sirens, they know where to go. Which one is closer for them? I guess too, in the past in Tonga, it's either when the last tsunami, which would have been the 2009 tsunami, that was triggered by an earthquake. And in the past, your weather disasters have mainly been cyclones. So something like this, the eruption of the volcano was something completely new. Well, it is totally new for us. Even myself, even in Tonga, people of Tonga, that's totally new. We are getting used to cyclones. We get used to the warning of the um, uh, tsunami. But that earthquake, the volcano was a plast. Oh, it hurt our ears and you can feel like a, you see the movie with the atomic bombs. Yeah, you see the pressure there. You see the trees almost falling down and the house is shaking. Exactly what happens there. It was a new thing for us. But luckily we survived on that, especially the people and the broadcasting. We were the only broadcaster broadcast on air. All other broadcasters, Delago, Internet, shut down. We were the only via information from government to public. Even though it's one way, but at least they have information. Because knowledge and information is power, right? It tells people what they need to do to keep safe. Well, in that kind of difficult situations, the information is, is vital to them. It's very crucial to their lifetime because that's the only thing they hear. Like, for example, the, the, the most island that affected, there's no other communication they hear. They're trying to listen to the radio, who's coming, who's coming for help. It, it, it's like that's the first priority they need, you know? Same as us in the main island. We listen what's happening. This is a very new disaster to us. What's happening? Uh, maybe the Nukalofa already uh, down in the ground or in the seawater or what? Eh? But they still listen. We are giving them information, just strengthen them not to panic. And the government relaying their message, even the prime ministers, the ministers. So I think we did a good job on that. Solomon Efi now travelled from Tonga to Aotearoa to take part in the recent Pacifica TV CEO GM Pacific Broadcasters Conference in Auckland. New Zealand's three-year tranche of aid spending has not changed compared to last year, as seen in the country's budget released in May. The country set aside $3.3 billion in aid, with the majority of this set to go to the Pacific. Terence Wood, a research fellow at Crawford School of Public Policy, speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about what this means. From budget day, the overall three-year tranche of New Zealand aid spending hasn't been increased any further. In that sense, New Zealand aid isn't going up. The other thing we learned, though, is that the aid program has spent quite slowly in the first two years of its tranche, which means that next year it's going to have to spend quite quickly if it wants to fully spend the aid money allocated to it. If it succeeds in spending that rapidly, the annual aid budget next year will go up by about a third, and that would mean a significant increase in aid to the Pacific, given that New Zealand's the second largest donor in the region. Okay, so you said that it hasn't gone 
up compared to last year. What is that level? How much are we talking? So the three-year tranche is $3.3 billion. But it's worth uh, remembering that that's only about 1% of government spending. New Zealand doesn't sacrifice a lot when it comes to giving foreign aid. And how much of that will go to the Pacific? So about 70% of our bilateral aid heads to the Pacific. We also have multilateral aid. I'd have to look at the exact numbers, sorry. But the majority of our aid goes to the Pacific. I can say that much with confidence. New Zealand has a strong Pacific focus. And in the Pacific, is there any particular country that will get most of this aid? Unfortunately, we can't tell that from budget documents. Indeed, it's very hard to tell, even if you go and look at MFAT's website. New Zealand isn't very transparent in its aid spending. To get a sense of where the bulk of our aid goes in the Pacific, you actually have to go and look at OECD data, and those data are only released after the fact. However, typically our largest partners tend to be actually the larger, poorer countries in the Western Pacific. So quite often, the largest share of New Zealand aid to the Pacific will go to a country like Papua New Guinea. I think last year might have been anomalous. The largest share of our aid to the Pacific might have gone to Fiji. But normally, it's the big, populous, poor countries of the Western Pacific that get the bulk of our aid. That doesn't mean we don't focus a lot on countries like Samoa on a per capita basis. They do get a, a lot of New Zealand aid on a per capita basis, but their populations are a lot less. So the bulk of our aid goes to the west, to countries like Papua New Guinea. What about New Zealand realm countries like the Cook Islands? Is money going to those places considered aid? Money to Nui and Tokelau is definitely considered aid. It's considered aid by New Zealand and it's considered aid by the OECD who tracks all this sort of stuff. Money to the Cook Islands is considered aid by New Zealand, but it's no longer considered aid by the OECD. The way the OECD thinks about these things, the Cook Islands is now affluent enough that money that's given to it shouldn't qualify as aid. But New Zealand has, and I think perfectly rightly, continued its relationship with the Cooks, continued to provide money despite the fact that it's become a somewhat more affluent country. Okay, and before you said that aid made up about 1% of New Zealand's total budget, and you said it's not a lot, how does it compare to other countries? The standard measure of comparison, which international organisations and NGOs use to sort of compare how generous different countries are is aid compared to GNI or aid compared to the size of a country's economy. So if you've got a bigger economy, the idea is you ought to be able to give more aid. And some countries are really quite generous on that metric. So somewhere like Luxembourg, I think aid spending is about 1% of gross national income. So about 1% of their economic activity is devoted to aid. In New Zealand's case, we tend to be down towards the bottom quarter of all the world's wealthy countries. So we're not a particularly generous donor by international standards. Is it a bit of a surprise that New Zealand hasn't increased its aid, especially considering the geopolitical tensions in the Pacific at the moment? It's worth noting that last year we did actually genuinely increase the three-year spending tranche, and that was thanks to our increase in climate finance. 
And it's also worth noting that next year, the annual aid budget will go up as the aid program hurries to spend the three-year tranche that it's been allocated. So unlike Australia, New Zealand aid is unequivocally on the rise right now. And that's a good thing. We have international obligations. I don't like the idea that aid has been driven by geopolitics. I'd rather that it wasn't, but I accept that's probably happening. It's also good, though, that we're facing up to the realities of climate change in countries in the Pacific, for example, and we're starting to increase our focus on supporting them adapt to climate change. So New Zealand aid is rising right now, and that's good news as far as I'm concerned. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, Fafitai Tele Lava, Tsofa Soifua.